Today's reading is taken from Matthew, chapter 7, verses 21 to 29, and can be found on page 972 of the Church Bibles, starting at chapter 20, uh, sorry, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you, away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Um, so, um, yes, we have um, before us today, we've come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' uh, discourse, which lasts from chapter 5 right to the end of chapter 7. And we find there two contrasts between what you might call a genuine, uh, substantial profession of faith in Jesus and a rather false, superficial profession. That's verses 21 to 23. And then we have um, the wise and secure foundation for life and a foolish and very insecure one in 24 to 27. So we have two contrasts. But in each case, there is one choice between the two options. And then finally, Matthew adds his own comment on what those who listen to Jesus, sitting on those uh, rolling hills around the northwestern part of the Sea of Galilee, as they kind of heard him speak with the lake behind him. And uh, he comments on their conclusion, what they began to make of Jesus. Well, last week we covered the earlier contrast that Jesus had made between the wide way and the narrow way to life, between uh, the false teachers and the true teachers. And this week we move from the false prophets to the false professors of faith, from the unsound teachers to the unsound hearers. At the end of his sermon, Jesus confronts his hearers with himself. That is, we are all in this life to work out what do we make of Jesus and what we will do as a consequence, and that determines our eternal destiny. Are they going to follow and obey him, or are they going to reject him, and uh, that's it? It's very simple, it's clear, and there is a choice, and it's clear-cut. But we will always try to think of a third way. 
we think of a fudge or we become selective. We pick, in, we pick out what we will obey and leave other parts of life where we can do our own thing. Well, to such who think there's a third alternative, Jesus has this very emphatic emphasis that there are just two ways, obedience and disobedience. And he wants his followers to respond to him with an unconditional commitment of their whole selves, their mind, their will, their heart, their bodies, intellectual, volitional, emotional and physical, the whole of life dedicated to him, orientated around him, obedient to him. And he warns them of these two unacceptable alternatives, a merely superficial verbal profession and a merely superficial intellectual knowledge. Neither is a substitute for obedience. In fact, both could be a camouflage for disobedience when what he wants from us is a thoroughgoing obedience on which our eternal destiny depends. And these two final paragraphs in the Sermon on the Mount are in some ways similar. Both contrast the wrong and the right responses to Jesus' teaching. Both show that neutrality is impossible and that a definite decision needs to be made. And both stress that nothing can take the place of an active, practical obedience. Both teach that the verdict on the day of judgment will be determined by our moral response to Christ and his teaching in this life. The only difference is that in the first paragraph, the people offer a profession of their lips as an alternative to obedience. Whereas in the second they offer a hearing with their ears as an alternative. So let's have a look at the, dam uh, at the dangers of a merely superficial profession, where we just have words, words, words. So what people are doing here is they're relying on some kind of creedal affirmation for their salvation, on what they say or even what they sing to Christ and about Christ. And this can happen in any Christian tradition. It can happen to ones which have a liturgy and it can happen amongst those who say they have no liturgy. Jesus says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And on that day many will say, but it will count for nothing. Our final destiny is settled not by what we say to him today or on the last day, but on whether we do what he says. Of course, making a verbal profession of faith in Christ is vital. The Apostle Paul in Romans uh, chapter 1 writes, if we confess with our lips and believe in our hearts, we shall be saved. Often, of course, when we baptise children of Christian believers, they're too young to say too much. So what we rely on is that they are brought up as Christians. We treat them as such in the Christian family. But when they embrace Christ personally, we need to know. And that's why they go public in either baptism or confirmation. So that we know that they own the faith for themselves. They're not relying on the faith they've been brought up in. 
So we also know that a true profession in Christ is impossible without the Holy Spirit. No one can say, Paul writes, Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And we believe that when we turn to Christ consciously, that his Spirit enters our life. So we might be thinking here, what's wrong with their public profession of Lord, Lord, did we not? You know, after all, um, it's quite respectable. Even if you just take Lord with a lowercase l, rather like our sir in English, where we are treating somebody with uh, deference and courtesy. But it also could be kind of Lord in the sense of a capital L, in the sense of a title, as it does with those who sit in the House of Lords and, uh, and the case. In that case, Jesus is clearly assuming the role of judge on the last day. You see, he's adopting the same title that God has in the Old Testament. The Hebrews translated the Old Testament into Greek, and the word that they used, Lord, was the word that they used to translate Yahweh, which is the name for God in the Old Testament. You can see who Jesus is thinking he is. So they certainly gave him his due recognition. And they were even quite fervent about it. You know, Lord, Lord, they invoke. It's an easy mistake to identify this formalism, going through the motions, saying or singing the right things with styles of Christian gathering with which we are unfamiliar. But it can occur in all types, from the most traditional to the most trendy, from what we might perceive as being boring or bananas or deathly and daft. Or it might just simply be what we consider to be the most normal. And these guys were public about their profession. Remember, it was from among those listening to his sermon that he then later sent out the 12 and the 70 to cover the whole Holy Land with his message. He obviously, in the three years of his public ministry, he couldn't get round to every village in the whole country, so he sent them out. And as he sent them out on a limited, uh, time-limited mission, these people prophesied. They spoke to the people as if they were speaking the message of God. They exercised. They saw people liberated from being trapped in the kingdom of darkness, and they emerged into the kingdom of light. They even performed miracles like Jesus, because that was God's way of authenticating this fresh revelation from him and validating it. But at least one of those who was sent out by Jesus and did those things turned out to be a false follower, a false apostle, Judas. Our capacity for self-deception is far greater than our imagining. The Foreign Secretary has been in the Far East in the last week, and um, he points out in an article in, a, in one of the papers yesterday, he says, self-deception is all too easy, he says. As we get older, he writes, 
we humans are capable of all manner of self-deception. We go under the knife in the hope of looking younger. We will take potions of dubious efficacy. But in the annals of human folly, you can just picture Boris saying that, can't you really? Drawing on his classical kind of education. In the annals of human, almost Churchillian, I think. Um, but uh, he's, a, well. But in the annals of human folly, there is surely nothing more delusional than the belief, prevalent in large parts of Asia, that a man can rectify his waning virility by grinding and eating the scales of a pangolin. Pangolins are a form of anteater, and he is lamenting the fact that because people think stuff which is bonkers, that 100,000 pandolins, pangolins, yeah, I think pangolins, yeah, and that 100,000 of them are wiped out each year just because people are self-deceived. Anyway, back to Jesus and away from Boris. So where are these hearers of Jesus going wrong? They call Jesus Lord, recognizing at least something divinely significant in him. They do so with a certain amount of passion, and they engage in public ministry. So what is not to like? Well, sadly, it is all talk. Talk without truth, profession without reality. It is superficial. It's not that they are merely going through the motion. They can, in fact, be quite earnest. It's possible to join a group and over time embrace their behaviour, but without the depths of their beliefs. It is cosmetic rather than deep conviction, and it's out of deep convictions that actions result. And Jesus says it won't save them on the last day. So Jesus moves from what they will say to him to what he will say to them. It will be in public, like theirs, but unlike theirs, it will be true. And he will address them in these terrible words. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. They used his name, but he never knew them. The reason for their rejection by him is that their profession was merely verbal and not moral. Superficially, on their lips, but not a deep moral transformation in their lives. They called Jesus Lord, but they never submitted to his lordship or obeyed the will of his Father in heaven. Luke, in his account of the Sermon on the Mount, is even more forceful Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? The vital difference is between saying and doing. The reason Christ the judge will banish them from him is that they are evildoers, he says. They might claim to do mighty works in their ministry, but in their everyday behaviour, the works they do are not good, but evil. Judas had gone out on those two missions, but he was seduced away from Jesus by his love of money. If we claim to be Christians, we will have professed our faith in Jesus privately at conversion and publicly in either baptism or confirmation or both. And we appear by doing so, 
to honour Jesus by referring to him as Lord. We recite the creeds in church. We sing songs of devotion and adoration to him. We even exercise a number of ministries in his name. But he's not impressed by pious words, even if they're literally true. He's looking for evidence of our sincerity in good acts of obedience. Now, so, for example, when we wrestle with our priorities or our behaviour, when we're wrestling to know what is the right thing to do, when we're balancing what we read and know from Scripture with what perhaps is in, um, if you like, the public domain, the pressure of those who run the media and the worldview that they're putting out, um, even perhaps by some around us in our sort of circle of friends and colleagues, when we're balancing out and wrestling between those two pressures on us, he expects us to go his way and to do his will. And that is how we display our genuineness. So we move on to uh, the danger of superficial intellectual knowledge, where it's just all in the head. It's not lived out in the life. And we move to the second paragraph with its contrast between two men, two houses, two foundations, two outcomes, and two responses to Jesus. And there are certain... Again, superficial similarities between these two men. Both built a house, verse 24 and 26. And both those houses would have looked fine by anybody who passed by. And they both experienced the same weather, 25 and 27. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against both houses. All of us sooner or later face some inevitable pressure of life in this world. It might be suffering, sickness, bereavement, disappointment, misunderstandings, trials, temptations, doubts. And all of us ultimately face death and face God and his verdict on us. In the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 13, the rains, the torrents, and the wind refer to God's judgment. But such stuff is not confined to the Old Testament, as if the Old Testament has got a God who's a pretty kind of capricious, vindictive so-and-so, whereas the New Testament has a nice, lovely Jesus. C.S. Lewis points out, all the most terrifying texts come from the mouth of our Lord Jesus. And Jesus here, as elsewhere, warns of this judgment to come. And these guys also had the same opportunity to respond. Both in 24 and 26, Jesus said, heard the words of mine. Many people heard Jesus, but only some heeded what he said and obeyed him. Hearing and doing are not the same thing. So whilst there are certain superficial similarities, there are also some very significant underlying differences. The description of the men by Jesus is the first. One is wise and the other is foolish. 
In the Old Testament, the wise and the foolish feature strikingly, particularly in the book of Proverbs and the Psalms. Each takes a different steer. For the wise men, it is from the Lord. Their motto would be the text, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is knowing the right way to live. Whereas the fool takes his steer from himself. Psalm 14 verse 1 would be his motto. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but it is the way that leads to destruction. And then their foundations are different. I went to a theological college in Bristol, and the main building dated from 1669. It had been the home of a wealthy merchant. Adjacent was the residential block, built in 1973. It was only seven years old when I went there. But there was a significant difference. One building hadn't moved for three centuries. The other had started to sink from the day it was completed. You see, one had been built on rock, whilst the other next to it and a bit below it had been built on 300 years of rubbish chucked out from the house. Here, the wise man built on the rock, whereas the foolish man built on the sand. Now, it's not clear in Matthew whether Jesus is speaking of location or depth when he talks about the foundations. In Matthew, it could be location. The wise man finds a rock and he builds on it. A foolish man settles for sand. Maybe he's just decided to build in a, in a dry wadi. It's dry in the summer for most of the year, but, of course, in the winter when the rains come and they have the flash floods, it all gets washed away. Whilst the wise man's house on the rock, perhaps a bit higher, is safe. Or it could well mean, as it clearly does in Luke, it's about the depth of the foundations. The fool builds on sand, whereas the wise man digs deep to fix his foundations into the rock. So Luke 6.48, like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. Contrasted with Luke 6.49, a man who built a house on the ground without foundation. If you go to earthquake zones today, just after one has struck, it's quite likely that you'll see a building that was built centuries ago and that has thick walls and deep foundations is still standing. Whereas the 1960s breeze block and reinforced concrete buildings have collapsed. They were built quickly and cheaply and probably without the required amount of steel in the concrete, and so they collapse like a pack of cars, killing many. The foolish man built in a hurry, with no thought of the future, looking to the short term and the seemingly easy life. The wise builder has taken time. He has thought ahead and he's accounted for the possible eventualities. And the third underlying difference lies in the outcome. The foundations were different, and that difference affected the different outcomes 
to the same event. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, both houses. The house built on the rock, we read, did not fall, but the other fell with a great crash. These words of Jesus were meant as words of warning. John Calvin put it like this, true piety is not fully distinguished from its counterfeit till it comes to the trial. The trial may be in this life or it may be at the final trial. What is certain, according to Jesus, is that it will come. It is a warning more than a threat. Some of you will remember 25 years or so ago of a big crash on the M4 up the road. It was on the 13th of March, 1991. And 10 people were killed and 25 people were injured on a foggy day in what turned out to be one of Britain's worst road accidents. One man, Alan Bateman, was hailed a hero after he climbed out of his damaged car and ran alongside the central reservation to try and warn oncoming vehicles of the wreckage ahead. And the response? Well, some drivers just sounded their horns and carried on towards the crash. Jesus warns us, not in order to frighten us. Because he loves us, he wants us to avoid the crash. He wants us to be like the wise man whose house did not fall, but stood at the times of, tre- of, of, times of uh, testing and trial. So the promise of Jesus is that the house built on the rock will withstand the storm of life. A life founded on obedience to Jesus is safe, no matter what the storms of life may bring. Such trials, such testing, is in preparation for the ultimate trial on the last day. The wise man can look forward to that. The book of Revelation talks of a new heaven and a new earth where we will spend eternity with Jesus. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And the key difference, what distinguishes one man from the other? The wise man not only hears the words of Jesus, but as Jesus says, puts them into practice. Whereas the foolish man hears, but does not put them into practice. One hears and does, the other hears and does not. If the contrast in the previous paragraph was between saying and doing, here it is between hearing and doing. And this stress on obedience, putting them into practice, doesn't, of course, mean that we could ever earn our way into the kingdom of God by a whole collection of good works. That would be completely contrary to what Jesus has said in the rest of his opening sermon. Nor does it mean that the person who does put these words into practice thereby then goes on to live a particularly sinless life. Only Jesus managed that. So if Jesus is not teaching what the reformers call justification by works, nor is he teaching sinless perfection, what is he saying? 
And the answer is, he's saying that listening alone is not enough. Hearing must lead to action. Not just words, but deeds. Deeply rooted and not simply superficial. Because they can be so easily washed away and revealed there was no substance to any profession in the first place. So two contrasts between saying and doing, between hearing and doing, and one choice to do or not to do. And one conclusion at the end of Jesus' sermon. What did they make of Jesus? Their understanding was, of course, evolving. This is at the start of his three-year public ministry. It was early days. But the surprising thing about Matthew's observation of the crowd is this. Jesus has clearly claimed to be God. He's saying he is the judge on the day of judgment. In the Old Testament, that is a role that is God's alone, reserved for him. And yet Jesus is saying, it's my role. Now this didn't, it seemed, cause his hearers to write him off as delusional. Why? Well, I guess it's because they'd seen enough of his life, they'd listened to enough of his teaching, which had a ring of truth about it. You know, it resonated with them. Yeah, they're thinking, "Mm, this does correspond to how I am. And they will have seen some of his miracles, things which even his opponents had to concede were miraculous. And they had begun, these first century monotheists, they weren't like all the other religions around them that had umpteen gods which they'd all created. No, they were monotheists. They believed in one God, the creator. And yet, they don't write Jesus off. They begin to think, maybe this guy is from another world. Matthew's comment, verse 28 When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. The scribes and the Pharisees merely quoted each other. Jesus is speaking as if he was in fact God speaking. And that's where his authority came and that's why they were amazed at what he said. This is the God who says that there are just two ways to live, the broad way or the narrow way, and two foundations to build on, the rock and the sand. One way leads to life, Jesus says, the other to destruction. One is building a building which is secure, the other will be flattened. Now this choice, that every human being has to make, it's why we're put on this earth, is a bigger choice than a career choice or even choosing a life partner. So we need to ask ourselves at the end of listening to Jesus, on which road are we travelling? On which foundation are we building? Are we persuaded and amazed that the God of the universe has come in Jesus and visited us. Let us pray.
When we think of Boris, we may well think of some of his foolery, but he's clearly right on the ease with which we can deceive ourselves. And we pray that we might not. We pray that as we recognize God himself in the person of Jesus, we would follow his way and build our life, this life and the life to come, on the foundation of our faith in him and do what he commands us to do. Amen.